0: Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com. So head over there for more information. So I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me, as usual, is Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi. Glad to have you. Glad to be here. It's going to be a good day. (laughs) It's going to be a good day. Holly, how are you doing? I'm
1: good. How are you? Good. I'm really, really super excited for this Yeah, podcast. me too. And
2: yeah, I'm a little nervous awesome. as well. Are you? I am a little nervous.
0: This is
1: going to be an intervention for Dan. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of an intervention for Dan.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so guys, we've got two very special people on the podcast today, Dr. Brenda Tillman and Ben Westcott. And we're going to continue this series on PTSI because after we recorded the one we did last week, it was so impactful just getting everyone's feedback on it. Um, and so really excited to have... One, a doctor who works with this stuff daily, and then uh, Ben who can give us his story and his experiences that uh, kind of, you know, his journey walking through this as well. So um, with that, I want to introduce everyone to Dr. Tillman first. You know, first off, welcome to the podcast. And I would say just roll right into your uh, background and, and what you're doing currently.
2: Steve, thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today and and on the podcast, but I'm also thrilled that this much effort is being put towards this, because if people understand this from the get-go, if we can get new first responders into this from the very beginning, uh, and they understand what symptoms look like and what do you do about those, and they understand that they're pretty common, the chances of us having to have these mental health programs that we're all talking about are significantly diminished, and that's what we're looking for. We want to build strength on the backside. We need you guys. So background, I um, I have been in the field of high stress, working with individuals in high stress jobs all of my career. I started with working with military members, running family support centers and programs all over the world uh, for the Air Force, uh, worked with the Air Force Reserve, worked with the Marines for numerous years doing pre- and post-exposure briefings coming and going from uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then uh, moved into the world of first uh, first responders. And uh, my doctorate degree is actually in um, in uh, a critical incident response program with a solution focused slant. So how do we get people through the big events with their solutions on the backside for strength? Awesome. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a licensed clinician in Texas. Um, my client base. I have a private practice in Fort Worth, and my client base are all first responders. And military members. Um, we also do a lot of work with aviation. Um, I've, I'm a pilot. Have flown since I was 14 and got licensed at 16. So it's kind of that mentality, you know. It's it's a culture. It is look if it's broken, fix it. And uh, and so that's kind of what my background has lend itself towards in working with individuals with traumatic experiences in life.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And. Lastly, we have uh, Ben Westcott with us. Ben, give us some of your background, how you got involved with Dr. Tillman, and uh, just give us your you know, brief introduction and what you're doing now.
3: Sure. I really appreciate you guys having us on this morning. Um, I've got 16 years uh, as a firefighter paramedic, and uh, it's kind of gone across anything from rural to suburban-type uh, departments. I work currently at the uh, city of Hearst Fire Department, which is in the mid-cities right between Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, the way that I got into this uh, uh, is I started having my own problems. I mm. uh, started experiencing a bunch of uh, symptoms of PTSD, and um, I finally reached out for help, and that's how I met Dr. Tillman. So after I got myself straightened out and, um, and got back to living normal life, Uh, it really hit me, you know, that I, I think that I could talk with guys just like me because I know guys like me. And that's, uh, that's kind of what put me in this direction. and started doing the training. Mm
0: -hmm. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to hear your story. I have a feeling that, uh, listening to you talk, we're going to have a lot of similarities just in, uh, some of the, the brief things that I know about you and, um, you know, some of the stuff you've gone through. So excited to chat with you more, but let's, um, let's talk to Dr. Tillman first. And, uh, Kind of start there, and then we'll kind of move into your case story, Ben, and and kind of go that route. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. Awesome. So, Dr. Tillman, um, real quick, PTSD, PTSI, we talked about it briefly last week. Was that correct, the differentiation between the two terms and kind of the newness of PTSI being used?
2: Yeah, Steve, it was. The information you provided was great. I mean it's great information. It is a little confusing because in in the clinical world we've got a manual that's called the diagnostic and statistical manual 5 that has a diagnosis of PTSD in it. The problem is PTSD has not been added to that diagnostic manual. And there is a there's there's um a movement uh, happening now where a lot of people are saying, you know, PTSD is a psychiatric disorder, whereas PTSI injury means that you've experienced something and physiologically you're responding to it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so your body, your brain, everything is responding to it in a way that we just don't teach people. We don't teach people that that's pretty common. Your brain is telling you some, something, do something with it. And so, PTSI is such a better diagnosis uh, than a PTSD diagnosis would be for individuals who have experienced extreme trauma and are working through it. So, yes, it was great information.
0: Awesome. And so how long has the term PTSI been used or has it been around? Because it seems like it's fairly new. And like you said, it's not currently in that uh, diagnosis manual. So is is that something that the industry is moving towards?
2: You know, it's so funny. In uh, Years ago, we got um, readiness. Our our company got a a contract to work with the Marines side of the house coming and going from Iraq and Afghanistan. And General Mattis was in charge of the Marines at that time, and he was using that term. He said, this is not a disorder that these guys are are having. And this was back in, you know, during the initial stages of, of the war, desert storm, all of those types of things. So it's been years. They've been looking at this for years. And the push has been that if you're injured, you're injured. And that's why the military are the, are the, the huge driving force for this change. If you're injured, I don't care whether it's mentally or physically, you're injured. And so, uh, that's, but it's been years. It, they've been looking at this for years. It is just now really getting to a point where the committee has opened up a research, uh, element of this to say, okay, how many people are looking at this? What is this? And you know, Steve, and you talked about it on the last podcast and Holly and Dan, you guys also added to this. There's a stigma associated with if I get diagnosed with PTSD, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And daily, I get things from firefighters and police officers, weapon carrying pilots. Um, if I go in, are they going to diagnose me with something that's going to that's gonna diminish my chances of being able to do my job? Mm-hmm. And so the... If, if by chance you have to say yes, then them going in is is probably it's, it's probably completely eliminated. So uh, it's a long time; it's been a while, and we're finally getting to a point. Hearing you say that yesterday was very exciting for me because we're getting to a point where the general public is using it.
3: Mm-hmm. Hey, I got a question. But for you we can't
2: up. use it for, Steve. We can't use it for insurance, right? Because it's All not right, a diagnosis right. in the DSM. So that's mm-hmm. kind of something to remember too.
0: Very true. So this is kind of a go goofy, ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. goofy question, but yeah. will PTSI, can that progress to PTSD? Do you understand what I mean?
2: So, yeah, so um, here is yeah, yes and yes and no, because they truly are combined, right? PTSD, the way the DSM-5 has it set up is day one to day 30. If you go in with symptoms of post-traumatic stress, then you've got acute stress disorder, you've got adjustment disorder, you've got some of the other things that are in the, the diagnostic manual. But if those symptoms continue with other criteria for over 30 days, then you can be diagnosed with PTSD, okay? And the only, I guess it's so important for you guys to realize this, that PTSD is a diagnosis so that we can get you the care that you need whether it's inpatient, whether it's outpatient, whether it's counseling, whether it's medicine, whether it's psychiatric care, um, it allows it allows you to get that through your insurance, right? Mm-hmm. I am really a I'm a I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not a fan of saying, Oh, you've got this mm-hmm. because people tend to come and say, I have this and boy, then you begin to see what they have because they've researched it and um so Yes, in the sense that PTSD is a diagnosable disorder that you can be diagnosed with after 30 days if you have those symptoms, but but think about it, Dan, from the perspective of PTSI, in that if you get diagnosed with PTSD, um, it is a continuous thing. Are you responding to uh, to a lifelong experience of abuse as a child or things that happened in childhood and now progressing through being a first responder? Absolutely. It can be a long-term thing where we don't look at it and say, okay, because you're dealing with some of the crap that you've experienced all through your life now, um, that doesn't mean that you should be eliminated from all of the licensure criteria and all the other things that people fear. I think it will be very helpful. I don't think we'll go from, if you get P- if you're diagnosed with PTSD, will that move into a PTSD? Um However, it could, because if inpatient is needed and we find that there's more that needs to come with that, the psychiatric care, if counseling isn't enough, if peer supported enough, then perhaps a PTSD diagnosis would give them the opportunity to get what they need.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Thank does, you.
2: Does that make sense?
1: That Sam? does totally
0: make sense. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. It's interesting okay. how okay. Um, insurance is so wrapped up into our diagnoses and treatments. Oh, I know. It is.
2: And and you know Holly, it's funny you say that because one of the things we do, uh, we've got a we've got a, a very large grant here in Texas for nine cities for all first responders, and it is um, uh, one of the requirements for the grant. It's an education based, it's a peer support based, and it is a clinician based. We do free counseling for any person in these nine cities that are first responders, and uh, and what we do is we teach. Our clinicians, you have to take the culture class. I mean, these clinicians are already licensed people. It's just maybe they don't have the understanding. And Steve, you brought this up in the last podcast, that it took you three clinicians to get to one who actually got you. Correct. And it actually happened to be somebody who had walked in the shoes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And, uh, and so we want to mitigate that. Because just getting somebody with post-traumatic stress into a, a clinician's office is a feat in itself, right?
0: Right.
2: And so if you have to go through three, the chances of them doing that are really slim. Absolutely. Um, you knew what you needed, and, man, you went and got it, and that's, that's incredible. But a lot of people won't know that and won't do that. So what we do with the grant is we train our clinicians, and we train them on the culture of first responders. What does that look like? We bring first responders into that training, and some of them tell their stories. And I was at the clinician group were sitting there with their mouth open. It was like, are you serious? You right. see this on a day, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So we need that. We need clinicians that are trained. We need clinicians that are not overly um, concerned right. with diagnostics. Diagnosing isn't the issue here. Uh, unless we need to get into medication and psychiatric care, but. Um, what we want to do with them is we want to look at the symptoms and we want to mitigate. We want to we want to change how they're responding to those memories, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not the diagnostic element of this. We need to train our clinicians. What are our first responders going through out there? And what are you looking to do? You don't have to identify it as something in the diagnostic manual, but identify it as what are the symptoms and what are the strengths this individual has on the backside to get through this, right. and let's promote. It.
0: That's awesome. I hope everybody can start to see why Dr. Tillman's on the show right now. Wow. <laughs> this is awesome Thank information. Thank you so to much. Be
2: on the show. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Thank
0: you so much. <laughs> I um, agree. So, Doc, you get someone with PTSI-related um, symptoms. They come see you. How is? What are some general treatment modalities for someone going through this? What is you know, the three, five, six main types of uh, treatment that they'll get?
2: So, um, gosh, so many. You guys, there is so much going on right now that are um, that are are extremely effective for trauma. Okay, for working trauma, whether it's past trauma, whether it's present situation. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy has always been, uh, you know, just talking about the event, walking it through, kind of doing some cognitive reframing on how do we think about that. And if those are really recent. Cognitive behavioral therapy works very well. We've got exposure therapy. There are a lot of organizations that are taking people back into the event and walking it through and understanding it and seeing it from a different perspective. We've got um, cognitive processing therapy, where we write things that happened during that event and and write about uh, our perceptions of what hap- happened. And um, but again, and then probably um, things like ketamine treatment. And things for extreme depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, a lot of new stuff out there that appears to be really making a difference in people's lives. Wow. Um, of course, if we could get them up front and educate them, we might not need this. If we had, uh, if we had the peer support. But in case we do, we've got them. Mm-hmm. Another one that, of course, Steve, you talked about last time was EMDR, and the EMDR yes. is a um, I'm, I you know somebody asked me, has that worked for everyone? And I use EMDR almost on every client.
0: Can you explain what that is, client. real quick?
2: Okay, yeah, sorry. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I listened to how you explained it, Steve, last time. Mm-hmm. And then I could go into a, a, a whole dissertation on what the heck this is. <laughs> awesome. But but yeah, but yeah, I won't. I
0: promise you. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, but uh, but how you explained it is perfect. The problem is, and Holly, you, you came in on this one too, that emotional brain is shut down when all of a sudden the brain is in fight or flight and you're in survival mode. You're doing what you do. So we don't have to analyze at that time. When that portion of the brain, the prefrontal cortex shuts down, what happens is we're still going, we're still taking information in and we're still doing what we know to do, right, especially as first responders. So now we've got all these facts in there that are storing in the prefrontal cortex and waiting for understanding. We're just doing them. We know what to do. So when you talked about just that, that whole group of memories that are just nothing makes sense and nothing downloads, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So we take all this information in. After the event, we go back to the fire station or we go back to wherever, whether we go home, whatever we do. And then we either just let it sit there and wait for it to say to us, okay, what do you want us to do with this now, okay? This is stuff we don't know where to download it. Um, and so it waits for you to give it direction. And what EMDR does is give just a quagmire of of memories direction to be able to download to the hippocampus and be able to put it in its individual compartments where it's supposed to go. In those compartments, we can handle uh, the memory as we bring it back up and as we put it away. EMDR helps us change the relationship to the memory because it pulls all those apart and puts it where they need to puts them where they need to be in memory. Oh. So yeah, I remember
1: Neera- I remember talking to you ahead. the first time I met you, and one of the things you said about this was when people come into your office, um, and I, I think you're being funny, but it, it really struck me as you said. I don't care about your feelings. I want to know yeah. what you remember happened, like the tactile parts yes. of what happened. And yes. that, mm-hmm. can All you explain how how you can um, go through like what you saw and smelled and felt yes. and how I, you put that together with emotion to put that away?
2: Yeah, Holly, that's amazing because you're absolutely right. And I don't mean to be insensitive, although I do tend, <laughs> tend to have some passion fatigue sometimes. But... Oh. Um, but I tell you, one of the biggest problems with counseling and that stigma attached to it, and I think Van will talk to this too, is that it's very touchy-feely. And it, actually, if you're a good, trained uh, trauma therapist, touchy-feely is not really where you are. I mean, it's not about touchy-feely. I care about your feelings. But what I really want to know is what did you see here, taste, touch, and smell? I want to know the senses that were impacted by that that's going to make that whole mess of memories in your brain. Right. And so uh, and so that's what I ask. I don't say, well, how do you feel about what's happened to you? What I say is, OK, so you walked into the building. This is what you saw first. Then what? All right. And then we walk through that. Now, whether we're doing EMDR or talk therapy or whatever it might be, then we walk through that. And Steve, you mentioned the paddles and you mentioned eye movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing about EMDR is that you don't have to talk a lot in EMDR, right? You just have right. to mention something about what comes up, but you don't have to walk through the story numerous times and think to yourself, Oh my gosh, if I have to tell this again, I'm just, I can't go through this again. Right? Um, you just let the brain and the activity of, of the bilateral stimulation do the work for you. Mm-hmm. And so that's why EMDR has become something that um, a lot of first responders like because telling that story Again and again is not what, what first responders like to go back and do. And so, um, but with this, what it allows people to do is take the, take the sensory experiences and put them where they need to be in memory in the hippocampus. And I want to tell you, uh, post-mortem assessments of hippocampus in individuals who have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, or who have had post-traumatic symptoms for life, you know, just dealt with things. Um, the hippocampus is extremely smaller. As a matter of fact, has shrunk to the point um, that it is minimal because nothing is stored. It's all just wow. ruminated. Wow. You know? And so and so what we're telling people is we've got to keep that hippocampus active by storing those things that need to go there by telling that story, by actually getting out there and doing that sensory experience. During the acute phase, which is while this is going on, within a couple of days of the event happening, getting the opportunity to walk through this this, and you can even watch people you guys as you're doing your peer support, you can watch people kind of looking up, they're looking to their literally to their prefrontal cortex to draw memory down and to be able to place it where it needs to go. So we never push people to talk about an event if they're not ready because you can actually do further damage if by chance we're saying, oh, no, dude, you got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it. Um, That's not helpful. That can be harmful. But what we do is give them the opportunity, boy, that was a tough one. So what was the worst thing about that for you? And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden what they get the opportunity to do is begin looking at those stoppers. And it might not be then, but it might be a week later they come back and say, all right, I'm ready. (laughs) Let me tell you what happened. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember with my treatment, um, My therapist would, you know, I, it's funny hearing you describe these steps. It's very similar to what he did. I I only remember telling the full story, I think one time, and then Mm -hmm. he would, he took notes and kind of had the 10 or 15 major parts of that story written down so that we would break it apart and then we would, you know, go through the EMDR piece and then, you know, we would relive all of those tactile emotions that, uh, Holly was mentioning, um, and it's, yeah. Yeah. it's incredible. Like I, it feels, I'll be honest, when he described what we were about to do, I remember thinking, what? Like, this is <laughs> this so is. strange. Is this? Yeah. You've got it these is. electrical like, totally paddles. Funny. Yeah. Like what yeah. is this going to do? Can like, you guys
1: explain yeah. it? <clears throat> for, like I've never yeah. experienced the EMDR. And so for me trying to visualize what's happening, I, I don't get it yet. So could
2: you go through and so explain? See, what it Yeah, looks yeah. Like. Go do ahead, you want to you want to talk about your yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, well, for me it was, um, and I my understanding, and Doctor correct Craig, if I'm wrong, there's a few different ways to do it. It's not there just are. one yes. way. Um, so the one that and
2: uh, let me let me give you as you're starting. Let me give yeah. you those ways. You can do light light panels. You can do light going back and forth. The whole thing for uh, EMDR is bilateral stimulation. So we want to stimulate. When we talk about the um, the brain shutting down, portions of the brain shutting down in fight or flight, think about it from the terms of what we're doing is we're thinking about this event and we're reactivating both sides of the brain while we're doing it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: Perfect. Yeah.
2: So You can do that through, you do that by making the eyes move back and forth or even with the paddles, Steve, you do that by feeling that stimulation, and your eyes almost move with it. It's almost like, Correct. okay, you you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And the light panels, the the lights, uh, the lights are exactly the same way. From one end of the light bar to the other end of the light bar, and you just go back and forth. And what that does is it activates both sides of the brain and says, okay, I'm going to think about a bad event. I'm going to go through this bad event again, but I don't want you to go into fight or flight again. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Because it'll shut that part of the brain down, and what you're trying to do is connect those two parts.
2: That's exactly right.
0: Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, the one that I did was the, you know, they're called paddles or uh, grips or whatever, but the ones that I used were probably the size of a half dollar-ish, and you have a gray one and a black one. You put one, I don't remember which one went where, but hold on to one of them in each hand, and then, you feel like a very light vibration as you're reliving or not reliving, but as you're talking about some of these things. Mm-hmm. And it was a very focused conversation that um, I was having very direct questions about a piece of it given to me. And then if something came up that was uh, negative or if it was, you know, spurring other thoughts to come into my brain, that's what we would talk about. And one of the things that he uncovered in that treatment during these, these times that we were breaking it down, um, and I'll, one of the pieces, uh, and I won't talk about it for too long cause I don't want to get super emotional on this podcast, but, yeah, um, exactly. one of the pieces exactly. was, um, the shirt that the little kid had on, um, yeah. and that yeah. shirt related to my kids, uh, age, my kids cartoons that they watch. And all of a sudden yeah. it wrapped up. Yeah all of the feelings and emotions of like a Saturday morning. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm realizing, Oh, that's where some of this guilt is coming from because yeah. the families that I doubt that they're not going to be able to to live with that. Above. Saturday morning. Yeah. Their, their yeah. Saturday morning is gone. And it yeah. was just like, Oh yeah. my God. And I remember yeah. talking to uh, Tim, my therapist and just saying, dude, like this is one of the major pieces. Like I, I, I feel like you just unlocked something yes. and it was very emotional, yes. but it was like, Oh man, that finally I feel unlocked, like, but, yes. Yeah. It, it, like, yeah, you know, we, we, you, you talked about it, Holly the other day. We do such a good job of compartmentalizing, but we suck at clearing those compartments out. Yeah. And it literally felt that's like true. he pulled the contents of one of those compartments out and said, okay, like let's make some space. Like,
1: here. wow. And that's probably yeah. something you might not have come to a conclusion with on your own.
0: Oh, absolutely not! I, you know, I I could have probably said, yeah, that really bothered me that you know she had on that shirt, you know, for this reason, but like it, the fact that it was, yeah. you know, guilt inducing because of, yeah. of that other component, it was like, oh man, this is so much deeper than that
1: feeling of the Saturday morning. Yes,
0: yes. So Steve, absolutely. Steve, where did it go? Remember, you're talking to a guy that's <laughs> never dealt with his shit. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. And so, where did it go when you said it? it you got it out of the compartment. Mm-hmm. Now, where is it? Good question. Yeah. So the follow up, and I'm really going to be curious to hear what Ben has to say about some of this stuff when, when he kind of broke down some of the components of his treatment. But the, for me, with that specific uh, part of it, it immediately felt like, oh man, there's something. Okay. And then he would take that and he'd say, okay, I just want you to think about that piece of it. And we would go back to the EMDR component and yeah. he kind of kept unraveling these layers to it. And then finally it was like he could summarize it and say, Steve, do you realize the reason you're experiencing these symptoms is because of the trauma you experienced and the, the, uh, the downstream effects of it. And yeah. when, when he was able to lay it out like that, it, it started to make sense and I could absorb it better. And it just, it just, it felt like, like we talk about, it felt like it was something I could now store appropriately. And it was, I could say, okay, man, that was a really traumatic call. That was a really tragic call. It was just sad. Everything about it was just so tragic. Um, I can live with having seen that now. It, it, and it, I don't want to make it sound like, I was fixed at that point, but I could see the light at the end of the tunnel at that point. It was like, Oh my God, finally, like it was almost equivalent to having a a dislocation popped back in. Wow. It still freaking hurts. It still hurts really, (laughs) really really bad. Um, yes, but there's a lot of relief. The, the, you know, acute pain is gone and now I'm going to be dealing with some of the chronic pain. Right. So like the swelling, it's going to take a little while to go down. I know to put ice on it. I know to rest it. I know to you know wear a sling. And now, but, do you think there's always going to be scar tissue? Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah, there will be. And oh,
2: so Dan mentioned yesterday. I'm sorry, Steve, but Dan mentioned or just mentioned yesterday. You know the whole feelings of look. I just don't. Not a big deal to me. I'm one of those who. And and when you ask the question, where does it go, uh, Dan? That's it. What it does is it clears two memories. Okay, so what it does is it changes the relationship that you have with that memory that you experience. Do you need DM- EMDR to do that? Not always. It just depends on the memory. When we say to people, look, we're what, the way we know whether this is working, not EMDR, but the way we know whether we're processing things is, is it getting easier for you to handle or is it getting more difficult for you to handle? And if it's getting more difficult, what's happening is it's ruminating. And it's causing that entrenchment that is not ever letting it download to memory, right? So now we we cause this deep groove that even when it wants to go to memory, it can't. Now the key to this, and I think Steve brought it up beautifully. Steve said, "You know what? Um, I I don't want to get too emotionally connected to this, so I'm not. I'm only going to go so deep." And that's perfect. What he told you was, "I've got a memory that is very hurtful." But the wonderful thing is now it's a memory. I'm not living it every day, right? Right. So he can put it away and he can bring it back up. And it's still hurtful when he brings it back up. But when he puts it away, it's not always on in front of him. And that's what we talk about in post-traumatic stress disorder. It is it is always on. You close your eyes. And this is the grounding for the rest of life that you're living that day. So. You come out at such a high level of stress and intensity, and then you add to it the rest of the day. And then all you do is try to push it, push it, push it down and leave it and run the other way. from it. Right. Mm -hmm. When actually you can go into whether it's EMDR. The nice thing about EMDR is all those things. If you're not really good at blocking, all those things will be brought up and you can't stop it (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the memory just kind of rolls. You know, even though you want to stop it, you can't stop it. It just kind of rolls. Some people will say it's going too fast and we'll have to slow it down a little bit. We'll just stop and talk for a little bit and then, and then go again. But, but Dan, here's the key. There are so many other things that work, like dark humor works for you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, you know, the coping capacity is based on an individual's system of getting through these things. So, and I get so many questions about, is there something wrong with me because I'm not affected by this? Or is there? No, what you've got is a system that you work with. What we look for is don't make it a problem if it's not one. But if it is one, address it,
0: mm-hmm. right? So, so you were saying that if it does, if it seems to get easier, then there's not an issue. What if that's just your new norm? Like, you know. Uh, well, and your like- yeah, your
2: coping capacity will. I mean, that's. I think that's a great statement. What if that's your new norm? Um, if that's your new norm and you're sleeping well and your relationships are good and your life is happy and you've got hope and you're not a slam clicker, you don't go in your room and your in your house every day and after work, slam the door, put yourself in your chair, you know, make yourself that cocktail that goes to a few more. Uh, as long as life is going along and you are happy and there's hope and you're loving what's going on and relationships are good then don't make it a problem if it's not one. Because mm-hmm. the new norm will change. You guys who see this stuff every single day, these stories I hear, um, it it raises your coping capacity. Now, I do want to bring up, and I mentioned just a minute ago, that element of compassion fatigue. Do we get to a point where we literally look at people and say, are you... Freaking kidding me! You know, <laughs> never, um, never. never.
1: yeah, never, never. We never
2: get that way, do we? <laughs> never, ever, ever. So, um, but that's the key. When you get to the point that your compassion fatigue has taken over, and you know where we usually see that is with families versus with with uh, patients, because you guys go the hundred yards for your patients. You just do it. But when you've given it all there and you've got nothing left at home. There's a really good chance that that plate that you bring to the table every time is full. And if you're not working it off yourself, then that's when you start saying, maybe I should look for some other resources. Okay? Now, you know, some of those resources might be exercise. Some of those might be peer support. I'm going to walk through this because, remember, it reorganizes that memory when you use peer support if you do it purposefully right? Not just, how you doing, dude? Everything going well, you know? It has to be, I'm going to walk you through the five senses here. What was the hardest thing about that for you? You know? Uh, because that's what organizes that memory to a point that it's not ruminating all the time. It can actually go, it can actually download to memory. So, um, so that, that new normal is a good thing for you guys. You have to establish a new normal, because you are going to see crap that nobody in lifetime should have to experience. Mm-hmm. And then what you do with that afterwards is what makes the difference as to whether you find that life a joy or whether you just exist. Right.
0: Wow. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think she just crushed the answer to your question.
0: I think she just crushed the answer to your question.
2: Wow.
0: Yes, that does answer my question. Thank you. Okay. So Good. doc, um, Two, two, two last questions for you. Um, cause you know, I sent you the ones I had for you, but these are, we're just ticking them out completely out of order, which is awesome because it's flowing really well. Um, if someone has, you know, and I, I call it the sentinel event call, but it might not, it might not be the sentinel event call like it was for me. It might be like you guys are talking about the constant, uh, exposure to multiple bad calls. Um, finally, you know, causes the you know spillover into symptoms and stuff. What does I, I i so where I'm going with this, I love lists. I love, you know, I'm super type A, very uh you know yeah, CS, yeah control freak. Yeah. And <laughs> like most of us are. And um yes. the what does recovery look like when someone starts to see these symptoms and they get a little bit worried because they're intrusive into their lives what does starting the road down recovery look like or what should it look like, I guess, is the, you know, if I'm feeling these handful of things that are, you know, like you said, I'm not enjoying life right now. I'm not able to find that new normal with this, with these memories. Where should they start? Um, what would, what would be your recommendation there?
2: So this is where I think peer support is essential. And I, you know, IASF, uh, so many different resources. If there's not a peer support team in your area, if there's not somebody you can turn to and say, life's not going the way I want it to go, and I, I want it to go a different direction. Uh, if there if there's not a list of good therapists in your area that people work with, um, that the first responders work with, then reach out outside your area. Reach out to somebody you guys, the, the power of having walked in your shoes is everything. Mm-hmm. A good therapist is imperative. I mean, we're, we're pretty important if people get to a point where they need to reach out to that level. But to be honest with you, uh, our, in this, this grant that we're doing here, education is a hundred percent, um, of what we are pushing. I mean, we're pushing the counseling. If we've got history because we haven't pushed the education enough in the past, then what we now realize is it's time for people to understand what happens in the brain when we experience trauma and what will mitigate the long-term effects of that. So what I would recommend as far as a path, first, education. Get your people, first responders, educated. Be truly a trauma-informed community. We say that a lot, our medical communities, our action investigators, our first responders. We say we're trauma-informed. Well, yes, you are. You know how to handle exactly what you need to do to stop whatever's happening to individuals and get them off to where they can get the help. But we don't do it for them, right? Mm -hmm. So education, what does trauma look like? What happens in the brain when you experience, when you do, you know, um, all of a sudden you've got the taste of milk on your mouth from working with a a child that didn't make it. Uh, you know, what do you do with that crap? And know that that's pretty common stuff. Ben's going to give some great insight to that in just, in just a minute. But then the path becomes, okay, is peer support enough? I've got that person now who gets me. I know that. Um, now I need to ask, is that enough? Am I telling the, the story? Even if it's not one event, this cumulative effect can even be worked through with peer support. But if not, if I'm not seeing work uh, fast enough, maybe I need an EMDR, maybe I need a CBT, then getting in touch with a culturally trained therapist. And now, I'll tell you what, this online stuff, it's hard for EMDR, although I've done it to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's difficult, but it can be done. But just going online and talking to somebody and saying, this is what I'm going through, and somebody saying no I'm sorry you're not crazy that's pretty common for the life you live for the for the profession you've chosen you know Mm -hmm. Um, the universality of that is amazing for people so just knowing that there are other people going through the exact same thing because we so often run from those symptoms because we think we're the only one experiencing them right Mm -hmm. and you know what that's a lack of education that's a lack of education these you, these people who experience this on a daily basis, we should let them know that those are pretty common symptoms. If you see this, here's what you do with it. Right. Um, but yet, we don't. We teach them how to help others. Mm-hmm. and so, uh, Which is wonderful. We absolutely need that. So the path looks like reaching out to somebody who's walked in your shoes, uh, listening to a podcast like this and finding out who are the three people that are running this podcast and kind of get in touch with one of them because it sounds like they'd be able to get me Going with somebody who might give me the help that I need or at least the understanding that I need. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, and then finding out, okay, what do I need? What level of care do I need? Because if it's gone to alcohol addictions, if it's gone to, you know, just life no longer being worth living, then it might be something that we need to get inpatient type care. And I will tell you what, we are now working with great companies to provide, and I have, IAFF is one of them, to provide inpatient programs for individuals who, uh, who might need that regular care on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we are watching all of those elements of licensure, and they deal specifically with a licensure specialist. So, you guys, common themes, oh my gosh, we, we had one first responder who was hit at the scene and literally um when when he went to the hospital he was so combative because you guys are horrible patients yeah, and uh and they literally had to they literally had to you know to tie him down at the bed to use restraints at the bed and when he got out the minute he put on his gear those those suctions the things that go around all the he couldn't he tore it off immediately it took him back so quickly mm-hmm. and so Everybody's thinking this is over. He's done. You know, we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and in essence, it was one session and that, and that's not always the case. One session of EMDR and the memory of this. It was put where it needed to be and he was in his gear the next week training. Awesome. That's amazing. But that's awesome. think about where that would have gone if by chance all of those resources, his chief knew who he needed to call mm-hmm. and his chief said, you're going to call this person and you're going to go in. Right. Right. Um, but everybody doesn't have that. Right. So we've got to get those resources out there and those people out there who can say, "Call whomever you have to call to get every bit of information you need.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's and, why we're I'm so thankful that you're doing this, Brenda yeah. and Ben for being here. Because, um, when I met you guys a year ago or it was about yes. a year ago,
2: yeah, yep. I mm-hmm.
1: was floored with how much passion you have but also with how little education we are provided oh, as healthcare absolutely. providers. Oh, yeah, no kidding. It's yeah. crazy. In I 2020, you. you know, it's right. crazy.
2: Yeah. Yes. We're looking at this for this type of education just 2 hours of trauma training is enough to let you know what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yep. uh, so we're looking we're looking at this for all of the schools now. We're looking at all of this for uh, onboarding programs. We're looking all of this. There's so much changing right now, you guys, and yeah with COVID and everything else that is impacting everyone from our medical community to our first responders, um, you know, we, people have to understand if you need to work, if you need to reach out, that's pretty common. Reaching yeah. out is pretty common. And so um, reach out to somebody who gets you mm-hmm. and who has that same mentality of not, how do you feel about that? But tell us what's going on with you. and Let's work those symptoms. Hey, Brenda, awesome.
1: I know we're, we're kind of, um, Oh, I could just listen to you talk all day. But um I do remember and I think it was actually Ben who told me this that um you guys have done some work where if you pick a person, like if you have a person that's your your person, you can call whenever to talk about anything um that right. it can actually reduce yep. your risk of suicide. And I was wondering if you could oh. like touch on that just a little bit because I feel like sometimes just having that person to reach out to for people who aren't comfortable yet making the leap to talk to a therapist or their chief or someone else, that could be the first step. And I was wondering if you could just touch on that a little bit.
2: Absolutely. You know, um, it it is amazing. It is amazing how often um, we start our classes with who's your person. And that kind of should be every bit of training that we do for first responders, especially because it should be who is your person that walks through this event with you? Who's your person? Who do you turn to to talk to them? When right? I talk about solution focused uh, practice on the front side of this purposeful peering. The whole element of that is when you walk through this event as close to the event as possible, you're going to mitigate the effects of that uh, culminating into something that is, um, that is overwhelming and, and could lead to suicidal ideation. And with the population, I mean, statistically, people say 30% in the first responder community you guys, everybody has post-traumatic stress um, after seeing whatever you guys see, and we could name a million of them, you know? Um, and so what we've got to do is we've got to make people recognize that if we use that just as a practice, and you, the inner firefighters, they're pretty good at this. Police are not so good at this because they just get off shift, go back to their car, they're alone, they isolate, you know, more so than than you guys do, at least to go back to the station usually. And so, uh, but, The key to this is, yes, if we can walk it through, if you know your person, your person, and that doesn't mean they're a member of the peer team, and it doesn't have to be done perfectly, but it has to be done purposefully, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, how are you? Well, I feel sad. It's just awful. It's horrible. But the more you all are in that, the more you stay in that, the more that becomes the rumination of the event. What we want to do on the backside of this is, so who is the person that you usually talk to about that? And when is the problem not as big? And what was the hardest thing about this for you? As we begin uh, to adjust those memories and be able to download those. And then we look for, is it getting easier? You know, are you thinking about it less and less? Or are you thinking about it more and more? And if it's more and more, then reach out before it becomes a problem. You know, Mm -hmm. we're so reactive in this world. And it's so amazing because you guys in, in first response are, proactive. I mean, you get out there, you teach people what to do, but you're there to react if they need it. We don't have the proactive side down. We just don't.
1: Mm-hmm. We can maybe <laughs> do even a whole podcast on choosing a person and what does it mean to be someone's person? Right. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's a really that,
2: good idea. And, and Holly, it's funny that you say that because I'm telling you um, every time you sit, we had, uh, what, been 40, 40 people in a class yesterday, all mm-hmm. separated, uh, police officers. But every one of them focused on the fact that there's a developed peer support team, but I'm not a member of the team. And mm-hmm. if that's our mentality, then we're missing 99% of the people in this this police force in first response as uh, paramedics, first responders. Um, we're missing them because they are peers. They've walked in those shoes. Right. And if they did it, they're right there. They're the ones that are right there with them.
0: Well, and the, the sad thing about, you know, the... And I don't remember if I shared this or not, uh, last week, but so I reached out to, there was numerous police agencies on this call with me and I reached out to two of the ones that, um, I knew on those police forces Mm -hmm. and I got the same response from them and they said, Hey, I would love to talk to someone about this and I would love to jump in on a, a peer support chat but neither of them felt like they could because it was an active case in the legal system. And so they felt like their job duties prevented them from talking about it. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot off and on, like there's, there's gotta be something that protects them in those circumstances when they're trying to, you know, talk about the trauma of something and not have that be court record, you know, right. like this right. would seem like it's a, you know, medical HIPAA type thing, uh, to some so degree. So
2: Steve, there yeah. is, okay. there absolutely is. And I will tell you, ICISF has really looked into this, uh, in depth. Good Samaritan law allows them to be able to talk to somebody about what they're experiencing. Now here, here lies the problem. That there's no notes taken, of course, when you do peer support. There's no, you know, there's nothing right. to document anything. It's all an extension of your memory, no matter what is requested. But the key here is the peer has to be able to stay on what, how this person is experiencing the event. In other words, it can't go to, but this person did this to this, and here's how, and I know this is, it can't go to the legal part of what's going on. All it can go to is what's sticking with you? You know, what is the hardest thing about this for you? I keep seeing that baby laying there. So that's a pretty common thing. Walk walk me through that sense. What was the smell that was going on in the room? What was the if you're doing purposeful peering, there's no reason for events to come up. And I tell you they do, and especially when somebody can be charged with some or when there's litigation or when there's they absolutely can. But there is a, there are laws out there that say we can have peer support and as long as we stay with supporting that peer on exactly what they're going through, uh, not what, what the facts are of this event, then, then we're good with that. The other side of course is the clinical portion, which is a protected or a pastor or which is protected in itself anyway. And again, an extension of memory, even in those cases, Clinicians know, don't take, don't take extreme notes, you know? Just jot down things that re, that, that you'll recall for the next session. And that way, even if you do get subpoenaed, even if it does open up, then, uh, you know, there's nothing in there that is anything other than what that individual is going through. And you might have to redirect that individual, because I've had peers say, well, it doesn't sound to me like you did anything wrong we have no idea whether they did anything wrong. And the last thing in the world we want to do is say something like that as peers. Right. Right. Um, And so, yeah, there is protection and there is ability, but as peers, we have to recognize we don't go into that arena. We stay in the arena of how are you getting through this? And what was the hardest thing about this for you? And what are you doing to get, to get this to where it needs to be? So it's not bothering you as much.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's perfect. That, I need to get that information out. All right, everybody, that's where we're going to stop with part one of Dr. Tillman and Ben's story. We are excited to bring you part two, but I wanted to break this up appropriately for uh, people who didn't have two hours to devote to listening to uh, a long episode, but lots of good stuff. We're excited to bring you part two whenever you're ready.